You're listening to the Founder Coach Podcast, a show that investigates what it really means to be the CEO of a fast-growing tech company. My name's Dave Bailey, and I coach founders that raise capital from the world's top venture funds to fuel their business. And I'm sitting down with CEOs to talk about their experiences, the challenges they face, and the lessons they've learned, or are learning right now. Hello, everybody. This is the Founder Coach Podcast. And today we're joined by Gren, who is the CEO of Lily. They use sensors to allow elderly people to live independently. Gren, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Dave. Thank you very much for inviting me on here. I'm quite excited. It's an absolute pleasure to invite you on. I saw Lily because we follow the latest companies that are raising and I thought, what great timing to build a company like this. Because I feel like a lot of us have elderly parents that have some sort of forced independence, right? Because I know you've positioned around providing independence for people who need support. I'm really curious to understand how this company came to be and exactly how it all works. Do you know what? I reckon it's probably not one of your more traditional stories in terms of how I've ended up on this podcast with you. Lilly was essentially a portfolio company of West Hill Capital, a rather successful private equity firm who you know, have a tremendous strike rate of spotting really, really innovative companies just ahead of their time. And I've worked with West Hill Capital for many years, sort of helping out on certain companies and how they should position and so on and so forth. Is this in your capacity as a COO? Yeah, look, I've always been the hammers and spanners guy. I'm the guy that literally rolls your sleeves up. Right, what do we need to fix? What do we need to you know, get going in the company? What do we need to take to market? And then being able to spin quickly when things don't go your way, which happens every day. So built a little bit of a reputation up for being a solid two, if you like, which is so hugely important when you're scaling a company because founders and CEOs can only go so far. So you need that bit more sort of mercenary approach. Just to unpack that a little bit, you said founders can only go so far. What have you learned around the limitations of people who founded a company and trying to scale? That's a really good question. It's like anything, you know, passion, drive, and all those wonderful superlatives that people use. Yes, they're hugely important, but it's almost like you're constantly battling. And a lot of founders are constantly battling, trying to either get their voice heard, trying to raise money, trying to win this particular contract. And it's very attritional, you know, and they encounter a lot of friction. And that's usually your startup journey. That's the story and the narrative with which a lot of people get to a Series A. The hard bit is when you're actually scaling because one person cannot build a company to a nine, ten-figure exit. It just simply doesn't happen. They will always be the voice of it, but are they the ones that do it? Probably not. And in the UK, we are tremendous at building startup companies. We've got a fabulous infrastructure to build startup companies, to give people the tools to accelerate their dream, their idea, their passion. What we don't have, and people fall off a cliff on in the UK, is that scale-up bit. When you have this phenomenal idea that you've just been given a chunk of money because people believe in you, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to scale this company? And a lot of people call themselves entrepreneurs. I've worked with entrepreneurs now for about 10, 15 years, and I do not call myself one at all. I'm absolutely not. What I am is working out, well, what is it that they want to achieve? What is it that the company is trying to achieve? It's like, right, well, now we have to build a business. That doesn't mean you need to build a business by textbooks or when you studied economics or anything like that. Build a business however you want to build the business. But there are key fundamentals that you need to do. And mine is very much taking the pain away, I suppose, from that. And you're actually a hired CEO for Lilly. Is that the way I should say it? You're a hired CEO? Or how would you phrase that? Yeah, that's the first time it's been phrased to me like that. But yeah, you know, I met the chairman, Dr. Leonard Anderson, and he showed me what he wanted to do and what he wanted to achieve. And I quite literally fell in love with the man. 
He's that typical British inventor. And what he did was born out of wanting to look after his mother, who was 350 years, uh, 350, 350 miles away. <laughs> That's an old person. <laughs> well, to be fair, he's 75 and you would never know it. And he wanted to look after his mother who was suffering from dementia. And he was like, well, how on earth can I do that? Because she tells me that she has lunch and she believes that she's had lunch, but she probably didn't make a sandwich, probably didn't have any toast. So he's like, what can I do? So originally he went to his shed in the back of his garden and built one of the first smart plugs that could monitor temperature, motion, heat, electricity usage, that kind of thing. And he was like, brilliant, I've got all this raw data. His son, who was working at last minute at the time, wrote an algorithm for him to be able to analyse that data and create a pattern of behaviour, which is a relatively simple thing to do. But what his son did, who's our CTO currently, was create the predictive analytics against it. So proper machine learning stuff, convolutional neural nets and so on and so forth. And he wrote this algorithm that was agnostic. So it can literally take data from any feed, anything networked. And if there's enough of it over a series of time, it can create a pattern of what use you do and then predict what you're about to. So you have a system that you can plug any data in and it will start to make predictions. Yeah, essentially. I suppose what our algorithms do is allow you a flight path within a very narrow variance of predictability. So to put that into example, if you've got someone who's suddenly going to the toilet more often in the night than not, you know, chances are with a bit of other data, that might be a UTI. So we rebranded recently from its original name, an incarnation of Kimuri. And Kimuri was very much a hardware-focused business. And the infrastructure play that it would need to succeed is getting tens of millions of units of its plug socket out into the construction world, really. And that's a very, very difficult task because it's labor-intensive, R&D-intensive, and it's not an easy thing to scale because you're looking at when retirement buildings or whatever it might be are actually built or retrofitted, which tends to be more generational. And then you're going up against much bigger companies in the IoT space. So the hardware play was never going to reap the rewards or the potential that it could have. But the software on the other side, when I saw the software they had written as a byproduct to make the plug socket work, I was absolutely blown away. Having a bit of a tech background, I was thinking there is nothing currently, certainly in the space they were aiming at, that can do this. And this is all sort of just pre-COVID. There's a crying out need for this in the health and social care system in the UK. And if it's need in the health and social care system in the UK, there's a need for it globally. So I spoke to West Hill Capital, who are the original backers of Community, and say, yeah, look, I can do something with this company for you. I can make it to what, what you need it to be and what we all want it to be. But we're going to have to raise some money and we're going to have to spend some time pivoting the business and reinvesting in it, getting the algorithms that they've written cleaner, tidier, more efficient and, you know, really focus our mission. But this was a big pivot in mission as well, right? It went from, as you say, construction space to the care space. The mission, I suppose, the purpose of the business is to care for our loved ones. So that hasn't changed. The execution has changed considerably. This is something that's first person relevant. I've got both my parents in their 80s. And at some point, I have to have a conversation with them that they're going to go into a home. And I want to make sure they get the independence and integrity of staying in their home as long as they can. And it's not just older people, it's vulnerable people, people that still want to live an independent life that are suffering with MS or diabetes or anything like that. There's what 11 million people 
in the UK alone that are considered vulnerable by the NHS and social care systems. That's a huge swathe of the population. And those people want to feel proud, don't want to be reliant on other people when it's unnecessary, but sometimes need to know that there's a guiding hand behind them or supporting them. So the mission of the company didn't change. But as I say, the execution fundamentally shifted. I'll be honest with you, I had no intention at all of working for another company. I was like, do you know what? I'm going to have a couple of years off with my family, with my boys, you know, my young kids, my wife, who I hadn't had the chance really to see because I'd been that successful too for quite some time. But when I saw the belief Len had for the company, and as I say, he's 75 years of age, I was like, do you know what? I've got to do everything I can to help this because this is going to be me in 20 or 30 years. This is my and dad potentially tomorrow. This is everyone's first person relevant to this. And we've got a breaking health social care system. So what can we do to take the pressure off? Private equity went into the care sector maybe 10, 15 years ago and literally took it to its knees because there isn't that much money in there. But these are people that have paid taxes all their life. So it's like, well, how can we let them have their last few years as independent as possible? So we went out and we thought, do you know what, what do I need to get us to a decent valuation and a decent amount of money? And I came up with sort of seven business markers. That's how we phrase them. And I know if we hit all of those business markers to a degree of between zero and 100%, we will get our next big raise. Previously, you'd operated other companies in the role of COO. This is the first time you've been the CEO. I'm curious what's changed as you've made that transition. You know... I have a duty of care and a duty of responsibility to their shareholders. That is fundamentally the hat that I wear on a daily basis. That isn't always the hat that you wear when you're a COO. You know you have to do that, but you're much more about the processification, if we're allowed to make up words, of your company. You know, making sure that you have the right financial controls in place, making sure that you have the right people practices in place, the right dev team in place, and so on and so forth. People know that they can trust you in your company, mm. you know, because you are the voice of the CEO and the CEO isn't there. And people know that if I have a problem, whether it's a personal, an infrastructure one, whatever it might be, I can talk to the COO and probably get it sorted. So I always, and have always, COO or not, always kept in my head, right, the team there is my safety net. They really are. I'm like, I know we can get to where we need to go if I remove barriers and take away any pain or friction that those people have. And if I can do that for them, I know that they'll achieve what they need to do. So I don't need to focus on that. I can focus on something else. And that kind of balance tends to be when you get really high-performing teams, when you can trust the level of output that you're expecting from each other. It doesn't matter whether you're a CEO, COO, or the office administrator. That's a hugely important thing, particularly when scaling a business. I just want to unpack a term you used, which was high-performing teams. How would you describe a high-performing team? Does it mainly depend on the individuals you choose? Or is it something around the way you structure the team and how you build it? To be honest, I think it's really important to know what your expectations are from a team. Because if they're unrealistic, then no matter how good that team is, they're not going to be, in your mind, high-performing. For you to say that, I'm going to take a guess that in the past, you've had an unrealistic expectation about your team, which was then corrected. Of course. I've made some horrendous mistakes in my career. And this is where you get really good founders, really good CEOs, where you don't measure the people against your standards you measure them against their best version of themselves do you ever catch yourself holding your team to your own standards and how do you bring yourself back i literally have to have this conversation with myself because i was that guy 
And my number two now, a lady by the name of Kelly Hudson, who I've worked with over the years, she really should be a CEO of a FTSE 250. And God willing, she will be. We're roughly the same age and we've got some younger people in the company. And we often have the conversation of like, I'm sure we used to get in earlier, do more stuff or at least give the appearance that we were working harder or doing more. And then we had to check each other and say, well, do you know what? You know, we probably did go in earlier and finish late, but what were we achieving? Nothing. It was just perception, you know, but that perception got us on a little bit. But just to unpack that, when you say it was perception, we're not talking about FaceTime where you're just on your Facebook or something in the work. I mean, you were working, but unpack the difference between kind of working and achieving things. I can actually unpack that. So on Monday morning, we have an all points broadcast. Everyone gets on video call and we talk about the one thing that we're each going to do to add value to the company. And that value is subjective. Come Friday, we have a, again, a roundup with everyone and we have a cheers to Friday. And all we're talking about on the Friday is not what you thought you were going to do by the Monday, but it's what successes we've had during the week. It's the, oh, I managed to get this particular widget working or we got this bit of PR or I completed a sale on my house. It's the stuff that makes you feel good when you leave work on a Friday knackered, but with your head held high. And the one thing I never want to build is the bit where you have to micromanage the outputs of people. So it's almost like giving them the responsibility to not let their teammates down, to not let the rest of the company down, to not slow the purpose or the mission that we're on. You know, Because 99 times out of 100, people want to do the right things. They don't want to let people down. And when they do, they're the wrong person for your company anyway. They take too much energy, too much time to get a level of output, then it's like, well, this isn't the right fit. What I love about the way you phrase that, it's still clear that you have the belief that people can improve. And rather than say, is this a good or a bad person? You say, how much effort is it going to be to get this person from where they are to where we need them to be? And do I have the time in order to coach them, etc.? I think it's mandated that no matter who you are in the company, and whenever you choose to leave, whether you choose it or the company chooses it, you are leaving the company better than when you came in. Now, that could be, right, what qualifications do we need to put you through? What is it that you'd like to learn? What systems do we need to teach you on? If someone's got the drive, the hunger, and to be truthful about it, they do have to have to want to be better. That's the difference, I suppose, then for someone who's just coming in nine to five, taking a lunch hour and just want their paycheck at the end of the month. Someone who actually realizes that, do you know what? I spend an awful lot of time at work. I may as well get the most out of it as I can. You know, I actually wrote an essay last year in which I said the most important quality in a startup is probably proactivity because there's just so much stuff that needs to happen. And so you just need people who are willing to pick things up and get it done. But I'm now working on a broader idea, which is the quality that defines success is actually conscientiousness. Probably a really good word for it, actually, because if someone is conscientious, then they're aware of either their own shortcomings or they're aware that they've got a lot more in the tank they can offer. So it's entirely up to a company then, and particularly, I suppose, me as a CEO, is to be able to nurture that out of people, give them the right environment and platforms to be able, as I say, to become the best version of themselves. That kind of thing really matters. I mean, how can we possibly, a company that is succeeding in trying to change the way vulnerable people in the UK are cared for and thought about, how could we possibly be able to succeed in that mission if we didn't do it for each other? It kind of starts with that. One of the first sort of formal hires that I made was our head of people. And I actually had shareholders phoning me up, asking me, why on earth are you hiring a head of people? You need your DevOps, you need your data scientists, you need this. I was like, yeah, I know. I, of course I know that. I'm going to get them. But if I hire the wrong ones in that, then that's wasted time, effort and energy. If I get the right head of people 
that understands our mission, our purpose, our ethos, and has a really good EQ, then I'll get the right ones of those rather than the ones I need right now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this has definitely been a big theme, the growing importance of this role. And just a shout out to Ben from Impala, who came on the pod and said, actually, he now recommends teams of like 10 people already look for a head of people, someone to really get the people processes in order and prepare for growth, basically earlier than you expect. Absolutely. And as I say, it was one of our first key hires. And we've gone from three people back in October last year to 15 now. And she's recruited them all. And everyone is flourishing. Dare I say this, they enjoy what it is they're doing. So that thread between all of the different departments when there are fierce deadlines and huge amount of tasks to achieve on any given day, that thread of a head of people is so important in scaling a company. Well, look, this is probably a good time for us to take a quick break. When we come back, though, I'm going to ask Ren to be open and honest about one of the challenges that he's facing as CEO of Lilly. So stay tuned. Welcome back. We're joined by Gren, who is the CEO of Lilly. You can find out more about Lilly at intelligentlily.com. So Gren, I loved the idea of judging people, not by your standards, but judging them by the best version of themselves. I thought that was a great mental unlock. You know, you've built several businesses in the past. You've just raised your growth round. What are the challenges that you're facing that relate to your professional development as a CEO? That's a really good question. I think I did suffer from a bit of imposter syndrome. And I think anyone who gets to a particular level where they're controlling, for want of a better word, the livelihoods of people that work for them, you've got to be some kind of narcissist to not take that kind of thing personally and go, whoa, this really matters. You know, we've got people that are getting married, are wanting to have children, have got children, are moving house or this, that and the other. There's a huge responsibility on my shoulders to make sure that this succeeds the way they wanted it to. They trusted me on this journey. So it's like, right, I can't let them down. I absolutely cannot let these people down. And I feel that being the CEO. The weird thing is being a COO, I had a CEO as a safety net. Not that it was ever required because as the COO, it's just like, I'll solve any problem that comes my way. The CEO didn't even know 90% of the problems that would ever come their way. But now I'm like, okay, I know I can do that as the COO. And now that my CEO role is this is all going to work for everyone. And I'll crawl over broken glass to make sure it does. One of the things you learn when you become CEO is that all of the problems in the business that no one else can solve end up on your plate. And I'll just share with you, when I became a CEO coach, I realized all the problems that CEOs don't know what to do with get brought to me. So I really can relate. There is certainly a lot of pressure, isn't there? Where are you on your journey managing that pressure? I'm much more comfortable in my lane in terms of what I know I can do and what I know I can't. And I feel comfortable in myself. It sounds like such a cliche. It sounds like something my dad would say, but it's it's so true. (laughs) That's the hardest thing about getting older that no one talks about is that you realize that your parents were actually right about a bunch of stuff. I know. It's so irritating. And... As I say, we've got some spectacularly bright and intelligent people in the company. And I learn every time I talk to them. And I'd like to think that every time they talk to me, they start to learn a little bit as well. And hopefully there's a respect. Like, oh, do you know what? He is actually he's all right. He knows what he's doing. Because that's the respect that I give everyone in the company. I'm like, Mike, you got that job for a particular reason. You must be top of your game because you wouldn't have got past our head of people otherwise. You're Kelly Hudson or Nick Weston, our other part of the management team. So I respect you for sitting in that chair and that's vice versa. That respect is up for either one of us to lose rather than to earn. As a first-time CEO, 
What do you want to do differently from companies you've worked in in the past? Everything. <laughs> yeah, why not? Clean slate. When I talked to Nick Weston, who's our chief commercial officer, he's the ex-enterprise director of O2, I've known him for many years. Kelly Hudson, our chief strategic officer, worked with our management consultants years ago. They're phenomenal and they're current and they're industry heavy hitters. And I was like, think of all of the things that you didn't like about companies that you've always worked for. Well, all of those we're not going to have. doesn't matter. We're just not going to have them. And we've all got a long list of those. And all the things that we do like and we do value, we will have them. And you know what? We'll just make sure that we're grown up enough to appreciate that if I don't do my bit, then that culture might change. And no one wants that. If we don't do our bit in the company, then I'll have shareholders knocking on my door in the middle of the night. You know, so I'm like, I don't want that. So what do I need to do to make sure that happens? So I suppose the good bit about being the CEO is you get to write with your team, you get to write the rules of what kind of company you want to be. Yeah, it's interesting because one of the paradoxes of being a startup is that every startup secretly wants to be a big company. And there's a real moment where a CEO will come to me like, I don't know what happened, but we've got processes and it feels like a very different place. Yeah. I mean, that's hugely valid because as we grow, then that mission, as well as it's front and center with everyone at the moment, that mission will get diluted. That purpose of the company will get diluted. I personally believe it's everybody's responsibility to make sure that that purpose of what it is that we're trying to do as a company is always borne out through everything we do. There will be a natural erosion of that mission, that camaraderie, that passion, that bit that fused you all together at the beginning, you know, to go on this journey as you grow. The irony is succeeding actually dilutes what it was like. So whilst I'm really big on process, I'm efficient and effective with what processes we need. Yeah. I've picked up this life philosophy that life is simple, but simple is hard. And I think there is something there around like purpose. You know, it's easy to say it takes a lot of thought and energy to do, doesn't it? When you're continually bringing people's everyday work back to the real purpose. Yeah. I, I mean, what you want to be able to do as you're scaling a company is I'm a bit of a car nut. So I understand things better if I can put some kind of analogy about a car in there. So driving an old school manual car. When you start it, you're in first gear, really, and your engine's revving really, really high, and you're not going that fast. So the idea is, as you scale, is to smoothly go through your gears, so you actually get faster and faster and faster, but the revs on your company start to come down a little bit, yet you're still moving at much greater speed. If you can do that, you'll be able to move very, very fast as a business, but it won't look like you're expending as much energy. Well, look, Gren, I just want to thank you for coming in and sharing all of this with us. I happened to spot Lily as I was going through startups that raised recently. And one thing that really came out to me is just the potential, not just, you know, in the developed world, but also in places where social care isn't viable. You know, I'm actually recording this from Brazil. And there are people who can't afford to go into homes or have social carers come to the house. So I really see this as a really important mission and glad that you're working on it. I really appreciate that. It matters to us all early 2022 will be into new international markets we have canada norway denmark and australia lined up already awesome so yeah we'll make our way over to south america as soon as we can oh, i hope so i hope so i mean there's certainly people in my extended family and i'm sure many of the listeners have family members who want that independent life but have different needs as well is this available now like how do i get this set up for a family member we are bringing a b2c product out in early 2022 but our focus is very much on the health infrastructures of countries. And health and social care is where we ply our trade at the moment. 
Very interesting market. I think it's curious that the founder had the idea when he was 75. Maybe that's what it took for this idea to come to fruition. But I'm very glad that to see that you're at the helm. Did you enjoy coming on the show? I really did. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I think I might have been a bit too honest going through there, but uh, you're annoyingly easy to talk to. <laughs> I know. I appreciate you saying that. And thank you for your honesty. I want to thank all the listeners who joined us today. I know that there are so many words of wisdom that Ren has shared with us today. So really appreciate that. If you enjoyed the podcast, please hit subscribe in Apple Podcasts, press follow on Spotify. Just give us a great review. That would be fantastic. And join us next time. We have some amazing CEOs in the season. I really can't wait for the next episode. Please look after yourselves. And I'll catch you next time.